Hello, listeners. Welcome to the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. My name is Larissa Lai, and I direct the Tea House Project as part of a Canada Research Chair in Creative Writing, which I hold here at the University of Calgary. I'm Hong Kong Chinese by way of Kumaye, Biotuk, and Coast Salish territories. I currently live on Treaty 7 land, where Tea House also makes its home. Tea House specifically acknowledges the Blackfoot Confederacy, comprising the Siksika, Bigani, and Gaina First Nations, as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakoda, comprising the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Wesley First Nations. We acknowledge also the Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Podcasts are produced and edited by graduate students from the English department here at the University of Calgary. You're just about to meet one of them. Hello and welcome to Tea House Talks, the Insurgent Architects House for Creative Writing podcast series. Today we present an interview of France Trépanier by Aruna Srivastava. My name is Rebecca Jelaine and I'm a research assistant for the Tea House Project at the University of Calgary. This interview was recorded during a Tea House Symposium called Wisdom Council in September 2019. Wisdom Council brought together a small council of senior practitioners in the arts who are mostly Black, Indigenous, and people of colour to sit in council over three days to discuss such topics as what our communities need now, memory and forgetting, care of elders in racialized communities, community formations they've experienced, and practices and strategies that might be of use or interest in the present moment. This interview was recorded as part of the gathering's work. France Trépanier is a visual artist and curator of Kanyan Kehaka and French ancestry. She is currently guest curator at Open Space in Victoria. Aruna Srivastava is an anti-racism educator in various community-based arts and academic contexts in Mokinstis Treaty 7 territory. In this episode, Kans talks about her sense of origins and how linguistic cleavages in Canada's official languages also pervade Indigenous communities and communities of people of colour. In terms of her work, she talks about the overlapping layers of her practices as an artist, curator, collaborator, and activist, and how these parts of who she is always inform one another. When asked to name a memorable project, she mentions her experience learning the spiritual, ritual, material aspects of building a longhouse as an important moment for her as an artist. Aruna and France discuss whether it's possible to be an artist entirely unconnected from institutions, and France wonders how indigeneity might not be well understood in the context of certain spaces, such as universities. She sees a shift from process-based to product-based practices with the institutional pressure to produce, and she worries that this negatively impacts contemporary art and artists. However, Hans reminds us that being part of institutions provides us with the agency to shape our environments from within.
I'm Aruna Sarvastava, and I'm here to have a chat, conversation, with Franck Trepanier, uh, who is an artist, activist, all sorts of things. I've known Franck for many years. <laughs> I was trying to remember the first time I, I met you. It's been a long time. It's been a long time. <clears throat> um, and I would consider us friends. Well, I consider you my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I do too. A friend um, that I don't get the opportunity to visit yes. as often as I would like. Yeah. So these kinds of these kinds of gatherings are, are great for that, and I, I, I think this Wisdom Council has been uh, a known fact. It's been inspired by the primary colors, um, primary colors events, and so that that's been great. So my first question is a who are you kind of question. Mm -hmm. um, if you'd like to talk a bit about your history where you come from in the, the best sense of that word, of that phrase. And just to tell us um, a little bit about you. Sure. This podcast, yeah. Sure. So as you mentioned, I'm, I'm an artist, an activist, mm -hmm. a researcher, a curator mm -hmm. of Ganyan Gehaga and French ancestry. So I come from, my family comes from the region of Chateau Giganawagi. So the Mohawk is from my dad's side and the French is from my mom's side. My grandparents moved to the Utahwe region even before I was born, obviously. Uh, so I was born in uh, a town that doesn't exist anymore, that's been uh, amalgamated into Getno. Uh, so I was born in Hall, mm -hmm. which is just on the other side of the river from the Parliament, mm -hmm. uh, Canadian Parliament. I, I was uh, uh, the oldest of a family of three. I know what it's like to be the oldest. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been in the arts. It seems that I've been in the arts for as long as I can remember. Uh, I never wondered what I would be doing when I would, you know, be uh, grown up. I never wondered what I was going to study. It's been, it's been just obvious all along. I became involved in the arts, uh, in the community, quite early on, because um, being in a, a town across the national capital, you live in the shadow of all the national institutions. So I, it was paradoxically poor artistically in the community where I lived. There were no artist-run centers, there were no public galleries, because all the good stuff was on the other side of the river. I was born in the 1960s in a time where it was not a good thing to have native blood. It was a fairly racist place to be born in. <laughs> and I was not raised in indigenous culture. I was not raised in Kenyan Kehaga culture. But it has been, it's been part of my family's history. It's been part of the stories that I've heard as a kid. And it's certainly been part of how I felt for a long time. And I think as an indigenous person, my, my indigenous family has been the artists, mm -hmm. has been the artistic community, really, that have been mentoring me, have been patient with me, have been teaching me, have shared with me. And I, I would like to mention a few names because I think it's important to to say who, who have been instrumental in guiding me somehow mm -hmm. along the way. And one of them is, is certainly Elenissa Bomsowin. Mm -hmm. She's been, yeah, she's been really instrumental. She's been like a sister, like a mother, like uh, 
a very strong presence. And sometimes just watching her has been amazing teaching. She's a, a very powerful person. Um, oh, when did you first meet Alanis? We met in the early 2000, mm -hmm. uh, just after we came back from Europe, from Paris. I was organizing this event, and maybe that's where we met, I'm not too sure, but at the time I was working, had work in Europe for a period of time. Coming back to Canada, I was still working with some European organizations, so the Council of Europe. That's where it was. Right? And yes, so yes. we organized, I was the organizer mm -hmm. of a conference in Montreal mm -hmm. called right. Diversity in Everyday Life. Yes. Right? Um, and we had people from, so bringing indigenous mm -hmm. people and people of color. Mm -hmm. And the lead was coming, in, interestingly enough, the lead was coming from the European Union. Mm -hmm. They were driving this project. And because Canada was not paying much attention to it, they kind of passed it on to me. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> 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 and I just, I, I was, you know, delighted to take it on. Mm -hmm. And that was, for me, one of the first time where I had the resources and uh, the space or the, the resources to hold the space for some of those conversations to happen. And it was important for me also to hold that space in Montreal mm -hmm. because being from Quebec, uh, and I spoke a little bit about that yesterday, there, there is a real, because of the two colonial languages in Canada, mm -hmm. there has been an important, and still is today, an important gap or cleavage between the Francophone communities and the Anglophone communities, and that's manifested both in, in Indigenous communities and communities of mm -hmm. color. And for Indigenous communities, I think the invisibility is even more damaging because there's no motherland to connect to, right? In the case of people of color, there's still the connection to a motherland somewhere. Mm -hmm. So for indigenous artists and indigenous people in Quebec in general, the conversation was really difficult. We were stuck in a real backwards mm -hmm. perception of indigeneity, folkloric understanding yeah. of things, but mainly just invisible. Mm -hmm. So for me to bring all these powerful voices, artists, to together in Montreal and have international guests as well, because mm. it was done with the Council of Europe. Uh, it was a good opportunity mm. to, to have, to start a conversation in that context. Mm -hmm. And that's where I think, yeah. And so that's where I met Alanis. Mm -hmm. And at the end of that uh, conference, something had just shifted, mm -hmm. and the friendship started there, I think, mm -hmm. to this day. It's, it's quite present. Mm -hmm. And it's a blessing to still have her with us. Mm -hmm. And then along the way, there's been people like you and Ashok. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that intonation was a really important yeah. moment for me mm -hmm. as an artist. Again, uh, <laughs> being living in the francophone, francophone space, the conversation around race, the conversation around colonization, post-coloniality, uh, is, is really shaped differently. And there's many reasons mm -hmm. for that, you know, historical yeah. reasons and philosophical reasons. Mm -hmm. French comes from a very specific philosophical tradition, a philosophie des lumières, yeah. you know, enlightenment. Yeah. 
which is still informing to this day uh, a lot of the, the cultural uh, culture in, in, in Quebec and in, in the Francophone world. Mm -hmm. I think uh, African countries are ahead of us uh, in that conversation. Mm -hmm. And we have, you know. So for me to be part of Intronation mm -hmm. was a, a really pivotal moment because I, I had the opportunity to learn a lot, mm -hmm. uh, but to also create alliances with a lot of people to deepen my understanding of some of these issues. And I remember right after wanting to have, to bring that conversation into a Francophone space. Mm -hmm. And I was able to convince some people at Canadian Heritage that it was a good thing to do. So in 2005, I organized a gathering uh, in Vancouver at Emily Carr mm -hmm. on Granville Island where I was able to bring together Francophone indigenous people, Francophone people of color, and Francophone Quebecois de Souche. Mm -hmm. And that was like a first, really. Mm -hmm. And for a lot of uh, Francophone de Souche, Purlaine, mm -hmm. it was the first time they were meeting an, an indigenous person. So it was a pretty powerful event. Helenis mm -hmm. was guiding it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> My light. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but also really powerful other people. You know, Romeo Saganash was there with us. Mm -hmm. uh, and a number of really amazing, amazing people guiding this conversation. For me, that was also another groundbreaking moment mm -hmm. that allowed this conversation to, to take root in, mm -hmm. in a different soil, mm -hmm. uh, which was more my, my own background, if my own backyard, if you, if you will, being, you know, the Francophone space. And so from there, my work has been this thing of trying to connect people, of trying to connect ideas, of passing ideas from one, one side to the other. Yeah, and uh, along all of that was the art, because now mm -hmm. I'm talking more a little bit about the activist part of it, but I was an active artist and curator, mm -hmm. and that practice was able to develop alongside. Uh, so after intronation, mm -hmm. I was invited to take part of the Aboriginal Newark residency mm -hmm. at the Banff Center, and that came out, that was a direct uh, outcome mm -hmm. of being part of intronation, and that's where Cheryl Lehondel invited yeah. me and Shirley Bear. Mm -hmm. So I need to say those two names, names as well. Too, yeah. Because they also have been, you know, guiding lights and mm -hmm. instrumental and generous and sometimes harsh <laughs> <laughs> and generous again. They really help shape my practice, shape, mm -hmm. find a place for my own identity yeah. and to, to be able to create a solid foundation, help me to, to create a foundation for mm -hmm. that. It's interesting for for me. It's why when we had when we were talking at the residency, as well as here this weekend, not just to talk about history and who's been part of these different histories and events, but also looking at these things autobiographically, and to see who and what these points of connections are. When I first came to Calgary, which is ninety three. The next year, Cheryl Rondell was living here then, and she was um, at the New Gallery, and she, not single-handedly, but mostly single-handedly, organized It's a Cultural Thing, which was how the Minkwon Panchayat came to be. Right. And that was, uh, I'm, uh, a bunch of us, Ashok and myself, we're also on the board of the New Gallery. And so that was my first introduction to 
the sort of arts activism in the context of anti-racism and strategies for arts organizing. And it was Cheryl who said, let's not let people come to this unless they bring an indigenous or of color person with them, which at the time people thought was odd and we thought was inspired. And I don't think it's happened a lot since. You know, you can't come to this event. If you don't. <laughs> if, you don't if you don't bring a mentee of some kind. And it was an amazing event. For me, in some ways, it's not just nostalgia. It's wonderful to think back to those moments of inspiration. How would you say one of the things that uh, Chris Creighton Kelly and I talked about was, to a certain extent, and he knew that I would do this, cr critiquing the notion of work, like what, what is your best work and that sort of thing. And I said, I'll, I'll talk about it and then I'll critique it. But are there aspects of your practice or your work that stand out for you in your, I was going to say lengthy career, in your career. <laughs> <laughs> That's just me being me. It's a tough question to answer mm -hmm. because the, I, have, I have multiple practices. And mm -hmm. so it's hard to identify when, I mean, and they're, you know, they're, they're overlapping mm -hmm. sometimes, and, and I play with the boundaries of those practices yeah. as well. So the artistic practice, the curatorial practice, the research mm -hmm. practice, the activist practice. Yeah. And it reminds me of, of John Cage, you know, saying, when you have just one practice, just one cup to fill, it takes less time than when you're trying to fill many mm -hmm. cups, right? Mm -hmm. So I feel that I, I, my lengthy career <laughs> might be lengthy, but I'm still filling up some of the cups, right? I would say that a lot of my work starts from a place of collaboration. The ideas that come to my mind are collaborative. I, I, I love people, and I love working with people, um, and I love creating moments of connection with people. And if I were to pick one piece, I would pick something, a piece called Offerings. And it's a piece that was developed, I guess it's, it's because of how it was developed that it speaks to me so much. And I think that's a piece that is the strongest probably. And it's a piece that has traveled quite a bit and engaged a, a fairly large number of people. So if I'm measuring, like how do you measure what's your best thing, right? Mm. So if I measured by my own learning process and then my collaborative process and my ability or the skills that I brought to that process to find ways of bringing other voices into my space. And it's probably a piece also where I played with the boundaries of, of the practice, the boundaries of the artistic practice and the curatorial mm -hmm. practice. So in 2012, I was invited to do a, a residency, an artist residency, in an artist-run center in Mi'kmaq territory on the Gaspé Peninsula. And I went there with a few ideas, but that's the beauty of residencies, is you don't have to figure it all out before you go. It's the idea of being there. And so I was doing some visiting with Mi'kmaq elders and just spending time, you know, having a cup of tea mm -hmm. and, and visiting, really. And so I was visiting this senior artist, Rene Martin, and we went into his garage because that's where his studio was. And this guy is an amazing artist. Mm -hmm. 
he works in the tiniest way, the, the, the most detailed little things with porcupine quills and very delicate work. But he also builds canoes that can go in the ocean. Those massive <laughs> things. And I was really impressed. And as we were talking, he, he showed me some pictures of some of the camp that he did with the kids. And one of my dreams, being from the people of the Longhouse, the Odonoshni means people of the Longhouse, one of my dreams always been to be able to build a Longhouse. But how do you do, how do you build a Longhouse? I don't know, you know. Anyway, we're looking at pictures, and there was a Longhouse in, his, in the pictures. And I said, oh, who did the, you know, like, Who's, who did the longhouse? And he said, well, I do longhouse. And I just felt like I, I could hear, the, <laughs> the, you know, the orchestra playing. That was a really interesting moment. And he, in his amazing generosity, offered to teach me. What a gift, right? Yes, wow. And not just teach me the technique of building a longhouse, but the whole process of how a longhouse comes together how you ask the trees if they're willing to become a longhouse mm -hmm. and how you go onto the land and how you, you can identify which tree mm -hmm. will be willing and how you put tobacco down and how you, you know, how mm -hmm. you harvest and how you take it back. And so we worked uh, collaboratively for three weeks to bring this longhouse mm -hmm. in the gallery. And it was very funny because while we were on, on the forest, harvesting the poles to build a longhouse, he kept pointing to bark that we should harvest, right, mm -hmm. the bark. But I didn't want to put bark on my longhouse <laughs> because my idea was to put a screen and to project a video on that screen. So I wanted just the structure of the longhouse. But he can, he, he can picture that. He didn't understand what I was a trying to do and we had this so for the whole week we were in the forest he could say that's a good treat to harvest bark <laughs> so, it's okay I don't need bark <laughs> so that piece became so the architecture the longhouse brought into the gallery in that particular context was very powerful because it was bringing indigenous architecture and in a space that was really about western art and a very different understanding of, of art practice mm -hmm. And this piece is about also exploring the notion of offering, but from different cultural perspective. So inviting people to perform offerings. Mm. Uh, so the longhouse becomes the safe place or the place of welcome for mm. these offerings. So that's a piece that's been traveling. The longhouse has been traveling across the land. It's mm. been presented on, you know, built in different territories. Mm -hmm. And in each place, I work with local artists, invite them, curate them mm -hmm. into the piece by recording live performances and bringing it into the, the um, exhibition space. Mm -hmm. And in the first iteration of that piece, one of the reasons for inviting the local artists is when I first got to that gallery in the first place, before even the invitation, the curator told me, that there were no professional artists in those indigenous communities that surrounded the Artist Run Center, and that there's no way that these people would show in the gallery, because what they were doing was craft. <laughs> so that became one of my motivation to find a proper way to bring their mm -hmm. presence into the gallery. 
So uh, by using the space as a welcoming space for them within my own context. So that's, yeah, I think that would be the one. <laughs> Sounds like an amazing project. In my interview with Chris, we talked, and I got a bit heated, heated about our discussion of institutions in the Wisdom Council. And we disagreed about our definition of what an institution was, mm -hmm. so we harked back to the discussion in, in the Primary Colors residency about whether it was possible to envision, like how we would envision practicing and, and being activists and living outside of the institutional context. And this is a bit of a leading question, but my own feeling is we keep getting enmeshed in these discussions of the necessity of institutions or the being entrapped in institutions. And I, get, I have to really watch myself for, about getting impatient with that. And so because you have been involved in various institutions, you know, governmental organizations and at the smaller levels is where Chris and I disagreed about what an institution was, you know, galleries and artist-run centers and various kinds of things. What is your perspective on the discussion around institutional being and the possibility of being outside of them? Well, I don't think you can be outside of them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, unless you decide to live off the grid and just be somewhere and do your thing, mm -hmm. maybe then. But yeah. if, you, if you're going to have a practice, an artistic practice, curatorial mm -hmm. practice, literary practice, whatever it is, you get nobody's outside of the institution. I mean, mm -hmm. we we have different. You can locate your practice in different places, mm -hmm. um, but I think to not have any relationship with institution is impossible. We right. we're in, at one moment or the other. We're all involved in mm -hmm. institutions. I think what we can decide is is how deep the involvement mm -hmm. is going to be. Mm -hmm. I think the challenge might be to keep a sense of objectivity. Mm -hmm. Because as we are involved in institutions, we tend to forget what life is outside. And we tend to forget the different modes of operating. Mm -hmm. uh, because some of those institutions are strong and have huge impact and huge influence on how we understand ourselves and, and the world around. What I've observed over the past few decades is a level of institutionalization of art practice. And that is, I won't put a judgment on it, but, mm -hmm. but it's there and it has in, an impact, I think, on art practice. Mm -hmm. Not that long ago, I remember as a young person where art school was art school, <laughs> right? <laughs> and theater school was theater school. Mm -hmm. And dance school was dance school. And I mean, the, you know, and I think there has been, especially with academia, there's been a, a real strong in institutionalization of, of art training and art practice in general. And I'm not sure that it's always a positive thing. And I'm not sure how indigenous practice is understood, is allowed, is even possible mm -hmm. in those contexts. 
So I'm not judging, I'm observing. Mm -hmm. um, and I can see I'm witnessing some of the pressure of this institutional embrace mm -hmm. on some of the younger artists and the impact of that pressure on practice and on the kind of production. And the impact of that, I mean, there's a velocity in, <laughs> yeah. in right? And the expectation of, of the institution as well, the rhythm of production and the expectation that is mm -hmm. put on practice. Mm -hmm. And I think that's kind of really provoking a shift from more process-based practices towards more product-based practices. Because mm -hmm. you have to produce shows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Or you know, or books, or mm -hmm. or whatever. And that I'm that I'm resisting. Yeah. That one I'm resisting deliberately. Mm -hmm. I'm I'm actually going the other way. I'm trying to, uh, certainly in my curatorial practice, trying to create larger spaces and way more time, like rethinking time of everything. Mm -hmm. I, have a sh I have a show last year called the Time of Things. So I'm I'm really you know concerned about that. And yet, at the same time, I think that because we're not outside of institutions and because institutions are full of people, <laughs> institutions are not outside of us the same way that funders are not outside of us. We're all part of the same ecosystem. So, and that's great because that means that we have agency. Yes. Right? Absolutely. We can change things. Yes. Yes. Okay. Sometimes we forget that. So that's kind of the objectivity I was talking about. Yeah. I think we have to be reminded often that, yes, the system is there, but the system is, not, is nothing, yeah. really. It's people. Yeah. I've been lucky enough in different instances to be able to maybe understand how systems work mm -hmm. enough to be able to challenge them or mm -hmm. to shift or to use them mm -hmm. in, you know, in explaining that, well, no, I won't be able to do this project in that time frame because that's not what I want to do because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm exploring something else mm -hmm. and you need to respond to that because that's, mm -hmm. you know, it's important. And you can shift, you can mm -hmm. make... It's not static. It's a process in itself. The challenge is, uh, especially, again, for younger people, to not just be uh, sucked up into those systems without understanding their own agency or having the skills to manifest that agency. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> in, a, in a discussion I was having earlier about sort of a, a lot of people, I think especially younger folks, but I'm not sure it's entirely that, are talking about precarity and in certainly in academic professions and some others, there's a, I think a sense of hopelessness, which I don't think is new that makes that institutionalization all the more solid, that feeling that there's nothing that we can do outside because, because it was so hard to get in. And so I'm, when I think of the examples of the people that I know and admire who seem to sort of be able to ne negotiate, you know, when you talk about agency, be able to negotiate various aspects of the ways that institution work without wholly feeling the pressure of it, like caving in to the pressure of it. And you're one of those people. I sometimes wonder why why it is that not not all of us can do that. You know, that we're institutional life is something that 
is a fact of social and cultural life. But I, I notice, especially with my Indigenous colleagues, both in, in the community, like Calgary Arts and so forth, as well as in the university, that there's a way in which the, it's so deeply oppressive. But I felt that, yeah. and I caved in. Mm -hmm. There were moments where, mm -hmm. in particular with Canadian Heritage, mm -hmm. I was a senior arts policy advisor for Canadian Heritage for a number of years. And there was a moment where I was asked to be part of the organizing group working with Sheila Copps <laughs> for this infamous gathering of, yeah, of Indigenous gathering. artists and artists yeah. of color. And that was a horrible experience, actually, yeah. for me, because the institute, in a nutshell, it's a yeah. long story, as you can imagine, but in a nutshell, what happened is that the institution started to use my credibility in the community. Mm -hmm. And they were not honest, and they were not respectful, but they were using my credibility to engage with people or to bring people in, people that had a lot of distrust. So they were using the trust that I had built in my relationships with people to bring them into a process where uh, they were they were racist, they were disloyal, they were untruthful, mm -hmm. and it created a situation where I knew that certain people were at the table because of my invitation, and I could see the manipulation that was happening. And it got to a point where I couldn't sleep at night. It really, I, my body caved in. I had to just walk away. And that's the moment where you have to leave the institution, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> so I, I don't think that to stay in an institution, well, I don't know, not for me anyway. Mm -hmm. I think that what was good for me was to be able to go in and out and in and out. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that was the end, though, of, of my relationship with, with that particular department. I, mm -hmm. I really had to, and you know, that kind of involvement. And I think that the movement in and out is important as well, uh, individually, but also collectively. I think to remember to, to create moments of openness on both sides. And certainly since that incident in the more activist or, you know, yeah, work that I do is in this space, the, yeah. the space in between, interstitial space mm -hmm. between the communities and the institutions, because I think I understand both yeah. or can function in both and trying to to just keep that space fluid so that stuff can go mm -hmm. back and forth yeah. and so that people can stay sane and healthy yeah i am really interested in your concept that has come up a couple of times this concept of of passage and the passeur partly because in my sort of in that heritage the south asian heritage the indian heritage that we have the caste that I come from, my father comes from, they were collaborators. And so that's how they survived as a tiny caste. But there's a word in Hindi that actually means something like passeur. Uh -huh. So they, a lot of other people didn't like what they did in India, but in each colonizing invasion, it was this group, seven families. Mathurs were also in that family. Um, Interestingly. <laughs> The Caius caste were the people who were, they were also clerics and artists and lawyers and, you know, those kinds of things. 
they were the people who always made up something like a civil service, but who recognized that, what that interstitial space was, what it, they, they knew what it was like to think like an invader or a settler, as well as what was important in terms of being the colonized. And for thousands of years, they did it. They still, they probably still do. So that's, that's why mm. that interests me, yeah. Anyway. Beautiful. Yeah. Okay, thank you so much, Paul. Well, thank you. Thank you to you, Una. We hope you enjoyed this interview of France Trépanier by Aruna Srivastava. I'm Rebecca Jelaine and you're listening to Tea House Talks. The interview you just heard was recorded during the Tea House Symposium Wisdom Council. We recognize the generous support of the Canada Research Chairs Program and the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council. We also appreciate the support of the Faculty of Arts and the Department of English at the University of Calgary, where our offices are housed as well as the guidance of Mark Sukel at the Taylor Family Digital Library. Tea House is run by Larissa Lai, Trin Delaney, Rebecca Shalane, Isabel Mikalski, and Joshua Whitehead. Our music is Monarch of the Streets by Loyalty Freak Music. Stay tuned for the next episode of Tea House Talks. For more on the work of Tea House, including symposia, panels, and readings, please check out our website at www tiahouse.ca. If you'd like to be in touch, send us an email at teahouseyyc at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.